So, I'm going to be reading from Colossians 1. Again, there is so much in Colossians, guys. I really, I really think Colossians 1, we could probably preach on it for about six months. But we've, we've only got a few weeks, so this is the last week on Colossians 1. Let's start in verse 13. And the, the he here is, is God, for what it's worth. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son, who he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He was before, before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that it, everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we are thankful for these words that have been echoed amongst believers for millennia. We pray that we continue to learn more and more and more of you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So, the first thing that you need to know about this is this is the second version of this sermon that I've written this week. The first one I spent so much time talking about how excited I was about the sermon, I, I ran out of time to actually talk about the things that I was excited about. So uh, I'm going to fly through the first bit. To recap, we're teaching on Colossians. You probably worked that part out. Sarah did an amazing job from the first week challenging us about the fruits of the Spirit and what it means for those to take root and how different the word of Jesus and the power of Jesus is to the words and powers of the world. And I talked last week about putting Christ at the center. So you're all caught up. Good. And this week we're going to be considering three things. Uh, the first thing is what God is like, which is quite a, a major theme I appreciate. Uh, the second one is what pleases God, which is also not a light topic. And the third is what reconciliation looks like with Jesus. So three pretty easy topics I can blast through. Our scripture reading today was primarily this Christ hymn or poem. Uh, it's found in verses 15 to 20. I'll read it out in a second. Uh, it's in chapter one, as we know. As we read these few verses again, just, just imagine these words being sung in a really, really early church. There's just, there's just a few people, probably 10 to 20, but, but everyone's there, different 
races and different genders and different ages and uh, different stature, different amounts of wealth. Everyone's there, but together they all sing this truth as one. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For him, for by him, all things were created, things in heaven, things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything, in everything, he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell within him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So this poem probably actually predates the letter of Colossians. It seems that Paul, who's the author of Colossians, was probably borrowing from someone else when he wrote this thing. This has been sung for thousands of years. This truth been proclaimed. And we're told uh, right at the beginning of this Christ hymn in verse 15 that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, there's quite a lot going on there. We'll, we'll unpack it a bit. But Paul uses this word image. Uh, the word in Greek is icon, which can have a couple of meanings. And the first of which is, is likeness in the way that you have someone's likeness, like their head printed on a coin. I guess a note now. <laughs> so it's quite funny that Christians everywhere singing this song would know that Caesar's likeness was on their coin. And this is the same Caesar who is keeping Paul in prison, who's writing this letter. They're used to what a likeness means, what an icon is. But this word can be more loaded. It can be richer. There can be more to it. The other thing that it means, which seems to be what Paul is getting at here, is more a manifestation. That is to say that God is completely revealed in who Jesus Christ is, by the words that Jesus Christ says, by the actions that Jesus Christ takes. That if we ever want to know what God is like, we can always look to Jesus. And this understanding of Jesus being central to our understanding of who God is is going to come up a little bit later, uh, but I want to move on for now as to what pleases God. We're told in verses 19 and 20 that God is pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And, and in order to really, really understand this, really understand it, I want to pause and I want to ask us all the question. Do we think that God is pleased by humanity? Because remember, while Jesus is the Son of God and the image of the invisible God, Jesus is also fully and completely human. 
And when I say pleased with humanity, I don't mean necessarily pleased by the things that we do, because there's all kinds of messiness that we do to one another, and it's clear that God really isn't pleased with that. But do we truly believe that God is pleased that humanity exists? Perhaps a little uh, story to help illustrate this, because I think this is probably the way my parents feel about me quite a lot of the time, and certainly the way they felt about me when I was growing up. I was thinking about this this week. For, for this story to really work, you have to bear in mind that in England, especially growing up, no one called me James ever. No, no one even knew my name. I was known as Curly, and I like I used to put on gigs, so enough people knew me, but no one actually knew my real name. Everyone knew me as Curly, and it's still the case now. When I speak at people's weddings, it says in the program that Curly's talking, wedding invitations go to Curly. So no one really calls me James ever. Anyway, there was this one time when I was about 16, I think, and I just started hanging out with like a new group of friends, and they were a few years older than me, and this was the coolest thing ever. I was like, I have made it. I remember being invited to my friend's house, and these are all my best friends now. Anyway, he invited me over, and I was like, this is it. I've made it. I'm so cool. And it, it gets to like two in the morning, and it's possible I hadn't quite told my parents how late I was going to be out. <laughs> and it's also possible I was ignoring my phone, because, I mean, I still do that. And there was a rat on this, my friend's door. And apparently you know, he had his own house. It wasn't his parents' house. There's this rat on the door. And everyone looks a bit panicked. <laughs> and my friend goes, are you my parents? And this, this booming, and it was a storm outside as well. It was awful. And this booming voice, this voice I've never heard from my mother says, no, I'm James's parents. <laughs> And then there's this like panicked look because no one knows who James is, and I just want to die. <laughs> like, can I get away with pretending I don't know who this person is? Anyway, I admitted to being James, and I came outside, and uh, my parents were far more gracious than I think I deserved at that point. The point <laughs> of this story is that whilst my parents were in that moment incredibly and understandably disappointed with me and with my behavior, they were very, very pleased that I existed. God is pleased to have his fullness dwell in Jesus because from the very beginning, God sees humankind as a very good creation. In Genesis 1, God creates humanity and says that ultimately we are the difference between creation being good and being very good. And God doesn't take that back. Ruben Alves, who wrote my favorite book ever, says this. See how we are lovely as the desire of God, so lovely that he created us to be mirrors, that his image and likeness should be reflected in us. And he made us from love, in love, for love, destined to walk with joined hands, sensitive to beauty, to goodness, to truth, alive at the breathing of his spirit. 
but but I think we can lose sight of that. I think it can be easy for us to comprehend God being pleased in Jesus. Of, of course he is. But we don't often or always consider the fact that God is pleased with humanity. And because God is so pleased with humanity, that the bits that were broken, that were fractured, that weren't complete, Jesus comes to repair those too. We can't lose sight of the truth that in verse 19, it says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, to have all of his fullness dwell in that human. And this word for dwell is quite interesting too, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, there's two words for dwell in Greek, which is the language that Paul is using. Uh, and one of them is a kind of temporary dwelling place, like a tent. Uh, but the one that Paul uses here is more permanent. So we ask ourselves that question over and over again, what God is like. And for all the complicated fumblings and theological treatises, the answer is, is kind of simple. To read from Alves again, Christians discovered that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is God's answer to the question, who are you? He answers us not with a treatise on anatomy or theology, but by telling us about his desires. God is love, and he tells us about his dream of love. He places it alive among us. Jesus of Nazareth is God's desire. He is God's choice, a lovelier more beautiful, more delightful thing there cannot be. So the God that we see in Jesus isn't like a fleeting image. It's not a temporary home. It's a reminder that whenever we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus, we keep Christ at the center. And, and, and this verse blows me, away, blows me away every single time about understanding God's heart and God's desire. But in verse 20, we hear that it's God's desire to reconcile all things to himself. Things on earth, things in heaven. And just before that, we've heard about how Jesus has descended to become the firstborn of the dead so that in all things he has supremacy. And there's nothing that can't be reconciled. And when we look at the actions of Jesus throughout his ministry, they reveal one who is clearly desperate for reconciliation. Jesus reveals how desperate for reconciliation God is and how far he's willing to go. That Jesus is willing to do whatever it takes, that he's willing to make the first move. All right, let's, let's look at Jesus for a moment, because I like doing that. <laughs> when Peter has denied being a disciple of Jesus three times, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus look like? What does reconciliation look like? 
what is the thing that Jesus does? Jesus cooks Peter breakfast. He asks Peter three times, do you love me? And so for each time Peter got it wrong, Jesus gives him an opportunity to make it right. And uh, I really, I struggle with this, and I've been chewing on this all week because I don't think I'm, like, worthy (laughs) to talk about it, I don't think. Because forgiveness doesn't come particularly easy to me. I talk a really good game, but I'm really not that great at it. And, and so I think about how hard it is uh, to forgive people that have let me down. Maybe you feel the same. But sometimes I kind of have that, you know, three strikes in a row. You've hurt me too many times. You've let me down for the last time. It's, it's kind of a logical way of thinking, I suppose. But instead of three strikes and you're out, Peter has three denials, means three more opportunities to show Jesus that he loves him. So maybe it's like not actually hard for Jesus at all. Maybe that's just my imprinting my humanity in Jesus rather than allowing Jesus' humanity to imprint on me and being as desperate for reconciliation as he is. I was I was talking to Laura this week, actually, uh, <laughs> and she was saying how we just can't wrap our heads around the fact that even if Peter denied Jesus 70 times 7, he would still cook him breakfast. Jesus would still forgive Peter that 70 times 7. And that 70 times 7th time would still be just as mercy-filled and grace-filled and love-filled as the first. I think I assume that I think it's hard for Jesus because I know how hard it would be for me. But it seems that's all ever Jesus wants to do. And why would Jesus doesn't do what he doesn't want to do an awful lot of the time? (laughs) There's a couple of times it comes up, but even that, there's a greater purpose behind. Jesus is doing something, it's probably because it's something he thinks is important. That's what God looks like. That's where God dwells. That's where you find God. Taking this to heart is hard, I think. Like if we truly believe that humans reconciling with one another is pleasing to God as Jesus manifested about God, then we kind of have to ask ourselves that question, like what are we doing to show radical reconciliation as well? Because we don't just see Jesus reconciling with his closest friends. In fact, he's quite firm that you shouldn't just be forgiving the people that you'd like. Most of us can understand the beauty important of reconciling with the ones we care about, but, but Jesus just takes it to the nth degree. He goes further and further and further and demonstrates the most radical reconciliation possible. Sometimes we look at the cross and we get uh, mired in the theology of it. Uh, And and there's lots of conversations about that. And and they're okay to have. 
But when we actually just look at the cross, at what we hear happened on the cross, I think sometimes that can reveal so much more than all the theologians and philosophers combined. Because on the cross, we see Jesus being insulted and being spat on and being sworn at and being cursed at and being tortured and being murdered. And yet Jesus' cry is, Father, forgive them. Like a, a body that's bent out of shape, literally. But still unbreakable. It says, Father, forgive them. Jesus forgives his torturers mid-torture, his murderers mid-murder. Because God is pleased by reconciliation, by the reconciliation of all things again and again and again. This is what God looks like. This is where God dwells. This is where you're going to find God. And I, I think, sadly, sometimes we've been kind of sold a bit short as to how radical and inclusive the love of God is. We talk about love, but mercy, but inclusive, but redemption, but reconciliation, but. But God isn't begrudging about reconciling all things to himself. He is pleased about it. That's what the text tells us. He's pleased about reconciling all things to himself. It's just intrinsically a part of who God is. There's a reason why God chose to covenant himself to humanity, knowing all the damage that humanity would do to the relationship. God chose us and he chose his reconciliation with us, and with all of creation on earth and in heaven every time. And, and it pains me that people don't know who God is and it pains me they don't know how much God loves them. But do we not think that pains God a whole lot more? Do we not think that God's deepest desire is for his children to come home and find peace and safety and love and protection in his arms? And don't we as Christians all ought to be doing all we can to make that possible? Do we not think that for every second that... <laughs> The children are lost. And without that reconciliation, that being made right, it's, it's just this insufferable agony for God. And to, to close with a bit of a question, do we not think that eventually God might get what he wants? <laughs> uh, David Bentley Hart speaks about God's desire to see all of his children come home uh, I think more poetically than most. And he's a controversial figure, but I'm just in love with the way that he talks about God and talks about humanity. What if we thought about it the way that he does, that each person, this is quoting him, each person as God elects them from before the ages is indispensable for the humanity that God eternally wills could never come to fruition in the absence of any member of that body, any facet of that beauty. And apart from the one who is lost, humanity, as God wills it, could never be complete.
I'm, I'm finishing up. <laughs> and I'll quote Alves one third time. And that banner that hangs over my door, Alves's words that echo the voices before him that cry out, let everything be redeemed. And as the heart of God yearns and longs for the day when all things are reconciled to himself, all of creation groans and longs for that reconciliation to be our reality once and for all. And so we partner with the Spirit of God and with those who have gone before us. And we join this cry for everything to be redeemed because Jesus showed us that this matters to God more than we could have ever imagined. The very last line of Psalm 150, the last line of the last psalm is, let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Let's dare to believe that it will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the ways that you have revealed yourself to us through scripture, through tradition, through our minds, through your son. We pray that we can keep Christ at the center in our understanding of people, in our understanding of you, in our understanding of who we are supposed to be. And Lord, we pray that we be ones as desperate for reconciliation, for restitution, for restoration as you are. You are the one that desires to see all things right the one who is pleased to reconcile. We pray that we can bear your image. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.